0: Welcome to the Wired to Hunt
1: podcast, your home for deer hunting news stories and strategies. And now, your host, Mark Kenyon. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast. I'm your host, Mark Kenyon. And this is episode number 146. Today on the show, we're joined by Mike Beatty, a man who tagged one of the biggest bucks ever killed with a bow. And in addition to the story of that buck, we're also going to be diving deep into how Mike continues to kill big, mature bucks to this day. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast brought to you by Sitka Gear. And today in the show, no big surprise here, we're talking whitetails and we're joined by a fellow whitetail nut. But this hunter is on a whole different level than I think almost all of our guests to this point, probably all of them. You know, just like most of the people we've talked to over the years, our guest today is a serious big buck killer. He's obsessed with deer and he's had plenty of success killing big mature bucks. But what none of our other guests have done is this: he has killed a 300-inch buck. He he just blew past that whole 200-inch mark, and he killed a <laughs> he killed a 39-point buck that, according to one article I read, scored 304 and 6 eighths inches. Um, I read that in North American Whitetail, but in the Pope and Young record books, it looks like that's a net 294. But regardless. Whatever the score is, yeah. <laughs> Whatever the score is, it's it's a freaking giant. And this guest is Mike Beatty. And you may recognize Mike as, for a very long time, his mug was on the side of those Primo's can calls. Do you remember that, Dan? Do you, you know that can call you flip over? Makes the meh yes. type noise, yeah. Yeah. So Mike's buck and his picture was on the side of that. And that can call, I still have the first one I ever got. I still have, and it's got Mike on it. And... Uh, I actually met Mike earlier this year at the ATA show, and then a couple weekends ago while I was working down um, at the Sika Gear booth at the Ohio Deer and Turkey Classic, he was there too, and so we got to spend some time getting to know each other there. And he he was just a really interesting guy, had a lot of interesting things to share, and I thought he'd be he'd be someone we should definitely talk to because you know not only did he kill that mega giant down in Ohio back and I think it was 2000, but he's continued to kill some really nice bucks that I've been uh, checking out on Facebook and different places. So I think he's got a lot to share and I'm excited uh, to kind of dive into all that. So that's kind of the plan, Dan. What do you think? I like big bucks and I cannot lie. Ditto. And I've been, I don't know about you, but I go, I occasionally go through like ebbs and flows in like my um, level of whitetail mania. Um, I mean, I'm it's basically every single day I'm doing something related to whitetails, but there are certain days when like I'm up all night thinking about it and looking at stuff on my phone and looking at maps, you know, we talk about it all the time, but then yeah. there's other days where, you know, I'm thinking about Alaska or I'm thinking about a backpacking trip or something. Um, Right now, I'm like in full blown whitetail mania. I've been studying trail camera pictures again. I have been reading a habitat improvement book that's got me thinking up all sorts of new crazy ideas that, that I might try to take on this next couple weeks. So, I don't know. And shed hunting, there's been all that shed going hunting. on too. So,
2: talked with a buddy today, and even just last weekend, he went out and found like nine sheds. So, and then, and then I got a guy who sends me uh, an email. Uh in March twenty sixth, which would have been this Sunday, uh he's got bucks on trail camera still holding both sides. So Mm -hmm. that old shed hunting stuff just crazy.
1: Yeah. I think that's what screwed me up this year. Um, well, you know, whole bunch of different things possibly could, but I think that um these deer, to your point, have been holding a lot later than usual this year. I saw a buck holding both sides just a couple days ago when I was shed hunting here in Michigan, and I worry it might have I might have blasted in after Holyfield too early because um, I probably I thought, you know, when I saw him early in March, I thought for sure he was going to drop soon, so I came back from that Iowa trip and hit it hard and I worry that he was still holding and maybe I pushed him out of the area. so Good chance. Yeah, I'm bummed about that. I I was being so patient in January and February and I thought I was going to wait till I saw him drop on camera, but then, you know, I think we talked about it a little bit. I just I wasn't getting any pictures of him. I saw, I had a couple pictures in early January, a couple pictures in early February, and then nothing. So I pulled my cameras at the end of the month. And then I saw him, and then I thought the way he was acting, oh, he's going to drop. And uh, I don't know. I've put on so many miles this year, um, way more than I ever have in Michigan, and uh, to no avail. So. Sometimes you get it. Sometimes you hit it
2: right. Sometimes you don't hit it at all. and uh, I don't know, man. It's uh shed hunting can play with your mind. I think a little bit. Very true. Very true.
1: It can be fresh, but you
2: just, you just got to keep walking.
1: Yeah. That's all there is to it in the end at the,
2: or, or give up.
1: Right. I'm just about there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> can I tell you what I've been doing the last like few days? I have a uh,
2: bench pressing. Like no. Just, and then taking pictures of it. <laughs> no. Okay. No. Uh, but some, off. something
1: <laughs> equally, something equally as impressive. I am becoming a handyman. All my right. all my buddies give me a hard time because I'm not handy at all. I can't do crap when it comes to fixing things or anything, but by necessity I'm learning cuz we are in the midst of like frantically trying to get our camper that we bought this past fall ready to go for our trips and we've had we found out that we had to replace the roof cuz there was some hidden water damage. And so for the last like 5 days I've been spending most of the day or my nights up there doing various things. So,
2: so my question is, do you feel now that you've purchased this camper and the money and time you've put into
1: it, did you get ripped off? So, I mean, we got sort of ripped off a little bit in that. um, (laughs) And I can't, you know, I think I've told you that I can't, you know, complain about the situation. I did tell you the story about this, right? I don't think so. Well, My wife's never going to listen to this, so I can, I can, I can say this story. <laughs> <laughs> Basically, uh, we were looking for campers and stuff this fall, and my wife really wanted to get one, and I was kind of dragging my feet on it because it was the middle of hunting season, and it was like early November, and she would found one on Craigslist she liked, but I had to be in the tree because I was, you know, it was like November 6th or 7th or something, so I was like, go take your dad, go look at this camper you know, I'm going to hunt. I got to hunt. You guys can look at it and just send me pictures or whatever. So she did that. Her and her dad liked it. Um, it looked good. It was a good deal. And so she texted me, you know, pictures and told me the scoop and just said, it seems like a good deal, blah, blah. And so I just said, all right, just, I trust you. Just do it. Um, and you know, now we found there's been more repair work needed to be done and the water damage and all that kind of stuff. But regardless of that, it was still, It's been more work than I expected, but because we got such a good deal price-wise, and other than this roof damage, um, everything else is really, really good shape. I mean, it wasn't used hardly at all. Um, Everything seems pretty much brand new except for the roof issues. So it's been more time invested, but as far as money, like for the total amount of money we'll have put into it, we definitely couldn't get as nice of a camper as we're going to have by the time it's all said and done. So, um, So overall, I still think it was a good deal. It's just been kind of frustrating is all
2: little more work than what you originally thought
1: yeah yeah but it's gonna be cool um and here in like a week and a half we got to be done with it because we're taking off so uh now is this a pull behind yeah yep okay all right so it's not an rv not an rv it's a 20 foot pull behind um there's just like a little area where there was a built-in bed but we took that out and we've made it into like a fold out bed so when it's folded Mm -hmm. up it's like a big couch and then at night I'm building a a big bench that will be like the floor support for the bed when it folds out and that'll be what it rests on top of Um, so we'll have some extra room there and then there's just a little table that could fold down into a bed if you've got someone else and then a little kitchen and little kitchenette, little bathroom and that's basically it so the bare Mm -hmm. essentials but it'll be enough to get us out there and just sick of sitting in, sleeping in a tent on these trips. Well, I love, I love sleeping in a tent, but we're just not, we're not renting a house this year. Um, oh, okay. I gotcha. So we're going to live out of the camper for three months.
2: I gotcha. All right. So
1: I can't convince my wife to live out of tent for three months, but uh, yeah, well, that's there's a I... guy,
2: there's a guy at a major intersection down by where I go to work at who who's been there for over three months. He lives under a bridge,
1: but <laughs> see, he well, does it? We we like the whole vagabonding thing, but not quite at that level. <laughs> you don't eat rats and pigeons. <laughs> we're not right? gonna we're not gonna go that far. Okay. So so yeah, we're gonna save some money. We're not gonna rent the cabins like we did the past couple of years. Um so we invested a little bit on the front end, but now, you know, for future years we're gonna have this to live out of and it's just gonna give us more flexibility. Um, you know, we'll be able to stay weeks at a time in different places and we don't need to drive as much, so it's going to be an adventure, man. We're going to start in Utah and then Wyoming and then Montana. And uh, so we'll see.
2: Well, I hope you have fun. And just, re- you know, while you're out doing that, remember the little guys who are sitting in the cubicles, right? wishing I... wishing they weren't in their cubicles.
1: Well, are you going to come visit me this summer? You talked about the fact that you might.
2: Yeah, I don't know. I don't know
1: nothing anymore.
2: Like, I, <laughs> like my brain is mush mashed potatoes some days, you know. I don't. <laughs> I don't know what I don't even know what's going on after I get done recording this podcast to be honest with you.
1: <laughs> I hear you. I hear you.
2: I know I know I got to feed the kids and I got to give them baths tonight. That's the only thing I know that's a hard like that's on the agenda for the next 6 months. <laughs>
1: <laughs> the bare essentials. At least you got the that bear, covered.
2: That's right. That's
1: right. Well, like you said, I, I I tweeted out a question the other night and said, like, what's your number one hunting goal for 2017? <laughs> and you're like, I can't remember exactly, but it's just something along the lines of figure out how not to piss off my wife so I can That's hunt. That's
2: <laughs> It was to hunt as efficient as possible uh, yes. while not pissing off my wife.
1: Yeah. That's right. Exactly. So as long as you've got that part figured out.
2: I don't have that part figured out and I don't think any husband ever will have that part figured out, right? Cuz if they if they ever did, they would write a book about it um and then it would be on Oprah's best selling list or whatever <laughs> that <laughs> whatever that is. And then uh he'd make a billion
1: dollars. You know, we got to do that um Hunting Wives podcast again. We've got to get some new um, oh significant God. others on the show to get their opinions on what we need to be. I doing. might be sick for that one. <laughs> You're never going to let your wife on here, are you?
2: Well, I might someday, but I might have to be, like, really drunk. <laughs>
1: i really want to make that happen i would would love that episode so much (laughs)
2: right it would be one hour of us arguing
1: (laughs) you wouldn't even say any words just pure gold as far as i'm concerned right oh man okay well we we got to wrap this one up and uh get our guest on the line so we're gonna give call we're gonna give mike a call but first let's take a break for our sitka story all right, so our Sitka story today comes from Dylan Lenz, a guy who lives in Huntsville, Wisconsin, and films for The Breaking Point TV. And Dylan's story today is one that actually doesn't have an ending. It's a story that hopefully we'll be able to share an ending to later this fall.
3: There's this just absolutely stud buck out there we've been watching, and we actually started calling him the narwhal. Not sure exactly why, but um, he's just a stud buck, huge times, Um really unique, and, you know, he stands out from the herd. You'll be watching 30 deer out in this marsh, 300, 400 yards out, and you can tell it's him, and he has the body, the stature, and, you know, just a giant frame on him. And uh, all the deer will be coming in, and he just he gets smart. Um, we'll have anywhere from 10 to 15 does come straight into the blind, and uh, this past year, you know, I thought we were going to seal the deal on him. He stopped about 100 yards out. Eight does came straight into the blind. He stopped 100 yards out, just surveyed the entire area, wanted to make sure something was right. He was the only deer that broke off of the pack, circled in three feet of snow to get downwind of us and busted us. And that's happened two, three times now with him over the last two years. So going into 2017, we're really going to be hoping that he made it and that uh, we can get a, an opportunity on him and hopefully outwit him this year because at this point, it's, it's almost personal, and it, it's really fun to actually uh, you know, play chess with a, a deer of that caliber, it seems like, almost, because it seems like he's always one step ahead of us, so this is going to be the year that really tests us to try and get ahead of him.
1: So what are those, what are those moments like when every single time you see him, he, hen- he ends up outsmarting you and circling down one?
3: <laughs> it really, you know, it's just a kick, kick in the stomach, really. I mean, I mean, it just leaves you feeling so defeated. But at the same time, it just instills that hope of, man, next time we're going to get him, you know?
1: (laughs) Yeah, definitely. So how many nights of sleep do you think you're going to lose between now and then while dreaming (laughs) about that deer?
3: Uh, The Norwalk keeps me up already. I can only say it's going to continue throughout the year, and I just can't wait to get back out there after this year. (laughs)
1: That's awesome. All right. This was a SICKA story. If you'd like to create a SICKA story of your own this coming season, you can visit sitkagear.com. And now, let's get back to the show and give Mike Beatty a call. All right, with us now on the line is Mike Beatty. Welcome to the show, Mike.
0: Yeah, glad to be here. Thanks for having me.
1: Absolutely. You you caught me and Dan off guard just a second ago before we started <laughs> recording because uh, you, you said, oh, Dan, I'm sorry for your loss, and we're both like, what loss? But you were calling him out on <laughs> shipwreck. That was good. <laughs> <laughs> That's uh. It's always nice when someone knows how to rag on Dan. I enjoy those types of guests.
3: <laughs> I'm used to it.
0: You you know it's all in good fun, Dan.
1: I know. I know it is. <laughs> so <laughs>
2: hey, you got to be able to take and give shit in life.
1: So
0: right, right on.
1: <laughs> very true. So so Mike, I briefly very briefly introduce you to our audience before you got on here with us. But can you just tell us a little bit about yourself, maybe how you got into whitetail hunting and, and what kind of stuff you're up to these days?
0: Sure. Um, well, it kind of, it kind of all stems from, you know, the family life you're raised in. Um, my dad was a Korean war veteran and i uh, deacon on a church board and mom, a Sunday school teacher. So had a pretty strict upbringing and uh, my brother-in-law kind of took me under his wing and I started hunting at a, at a pretty early age, just tagging along with him, basically, at about eight years old. And uh, we would go, you know, groundhog hunting, squirrel hunting, a lot of small game. And uh, then, you know, back then you couldn't really get your, your hunting license in the state of Pennsylvania until you were age 12. I'm not really sure if it's that way anymore. You know how they, they try and get youngsters involved now earlier at an earlier age. So um, I kind of cut my teeth on PA deer. Uh, trying to provide feet, uh, meat for the family, you know, filling up that freezer. Uh, right after, right out of high school, I joined the military and left and kind of went and traveled the world a little bit and started out at wright Pat Air Force Base here in Greene County, Ohio. And uh, then I short, short order after that, I, I received PCS orders to go to the Philippines. So I met a girl here, a local girl, and we, we ended up getting married before I left. And uh, she went over to the Philippines with me where we had our first son, Andrew, and uh, he's actually, you know, uh, the one that helped me find the baby buck whenever whenever all that went down. But um, anyhow, we, we left the Philippines uh, after Mount Pinatubo blew up and we kind of had to evac out of there, traveled on to Lower Island in the, in the Philippines and then off, you know, further on to the, the stateside where I was able to get back to, I was offered the opportunity to go back to wright Pat, and be stationed there, you know, at wright Patterson Air Force Base here in Ohio. So it was good to get back home to to her family and where she's from. And that's kind of where we settled down, and then we, you know, had our next child, Britain. so we have two. And uh, I've been here ever since, and then just started, started really focusing in on, on hunting here in Ohio quite a bit once I got back, because... One, I was, you know, I was craving it so bad because over in the Philippines I couldn't hunt, and then when I got back here, you know, it, it was obvious there was big deer everywhere, so I just started bow hunting, really, really hard.
3: Yeah,
1: and it and it, it seems like uh, things got kicked off for you pretty well once you moved to Ohio and started chasing those big Ohio bucks. Was um, you know. Of course, we have to talk about your giant there in two thousand. Was that your first really, really big buck there in Ohio, or were you getting on some other bigger deer before that too
4: yeah
0: i i killed a couple you know close to Pope and young with with archery equipment one one was right at like one thirty 130, one thirty five uh an eight point for an eight point pretty good eight point but uh i I could never get you know on to the well obviously we we educate ourselves as we as we grow older and i i found myself you know pressuring the deer you know learning from my mistakes and then you know as time went on i was able to get closer and closer to big deer and i mean i've got a ton of stories of of misses or close encounters where you know i just messed up you know quite honestly whether it would be you know trying to sneak in you know Upwind and just blowing my scent around, or you know, putting a tree stand in the wrong the wrong tree. So
3: I just I've learned a
0: lot over the years, just you know, just trying to focus in on on how the deer, you know, move and their moving patterns, their bedding, you know, where their food sources are, and just keying in on on you know, pinch points and funnels and, and whatnot.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think, uh, Dan and I can definitely relate. We, we have had lots of mistakes that we've tried to learn from too. Um, sure. that's for sure. So, so let's, let's kick things off there. Um, I want to dive into some of your strategies and some of the things you've done in the years since, but let's kick things off there in 2000. Um, can you tell us, you know, can you tell us the story of, of the baity buck? How did you find that deer? How'd that whole season go until you killed him? and how'd that all end up going down? Well, you know, first
0: first off, whenever I went and uh, I I actually gained permission from a, a private landowner. Um and he, you know, was gracious enough to let me go in and hunt, which it was pretty open to be honest with you. And there was there was a really nice funnel down this fence row and it you know, one side was beans, one side was corn. And uh I got back in this corner and I just really, really liked this corner and I was seeing a lot of deer <coughs> excuse me, and uh I just, I never seen the baby buck. I, I just seen a lot of, of good shooters and I thought, man, I'm in just the honey hole, right? So it wasn't long after that, you know, somebody had, had messed around with my stand location and took some stuff off the tree and just really frustrating. So, you know, I ended up talking to the landowner and he said, listen, why don't you just move up the fence row some, you know, get away from the neighbor. And so I did. And I, you know, I listened to his advice, you know, he knows his car better than anybody else. So, meaning meaning his property, so he said the deer always seemed to cross through this fence row down in this area of the field. So, there was a sparse tree line there, so I went down there and hung a set, and I got in a little pin oak tree, and I was only probably 15 or 16 feet off the ground. It wasn't very high because it wasn't a very mature tree, Um, heavy enough to hold a set, you know. But um, So, anyhow, I, you know, had been scouting that area. And uh, me and my son would go out, and we would just sit on this knob at a distance, and we would just scout these fence rows and fields and and you would see just some of the, the nicest deer and just the big white racks you know, so I was trying to figure out how I could get in on this this one particular eight point is what I was chasing he looking back now that I've been around quite a few deer these shows, I would say that he was probably one fifty maybe one sixty ish eight point um wow he had actually came in to the stand location that night and I almost got a shot at him and I mean another two steps and I, and I would have flung an arrow at him, you know?
2: So. What time of year that, was that?
0: That was uh well, we have been scouting early season and, and, you know, I hunted pretty hard the first month. I mean, I was 29 days straight hunting the same couple sets, which, you know, now we all know is probably not the, the best choice, but, uh, the the actual night that of the evening of the harvest for the baby buck was November 8, 2000. So basically what happened is I I, I didn't really want to go out that night just because I'd, I'd been kind of burning myself out. Plus, you know, a lot of labor on the on the wife trying to pick up the kids from the sitter and all that <laughs> stuff. Yeah. So I was like, man, I, I, I just won't go tonight. Well, it started drizzling rain that day at work. I was like, man, this is perfect. Like, it was real calm, and I was just like, you "Just you just know the feeling when, you know, you should be in the woods. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So the front was coming in, and I, you know, I got home. I didn't tell my wife I wanted to go, but I got home, and bless her heart, she had a, a note laying on a table, on a kitchen table that said, hey, go ahead and go hunting. I know it's going to be a good night. You know, I'll get the kids. Don't worry about it. That's awesome. All right, Pete shoot you ain't got to tell me twice you know it's time for dinner (laughs) so i took off and i went well i pulled up into the to the back side of the property and i pull up this fence row and there's kind of like a a big v on this knob of this hill where the farmers can't plant because it's kind of too steep so i look down the back side where i normally park i I look to my left and there's the edge of the cornfield and the grass is grown up and it's it's kind of overgrown briars and stuff well, these two or three does stand up. They were bedded right on the edge of the corn, right in this grass. And when I pulled up, I mean, they just jumped up and just trotted into the corn. And I was like, oh man, I just, you know, booger dish hunt. I just pressured whatever deer were here. So I, I got out anyhow and I slipped through the corn. I had kind of a, a mash down trail through the corn that I could slip through the edge of the corn and get to my stand. And I get up in the stand and I don't know, I let everything settle down. It was probably 20 minutes to half an hour. So I hit the grunt tube, hit the can call, and then smacked this little basket rack eight-point antlers that I carry. So I did like a little miniature rattling sequence, and I waited, you know, hung the antlers up, and I just sat there and just waiting. I looked over my left shoulder, and there's a deer standing there working a scrape, and I'm like, holy crap, it's that big eight point. So I'm thinking, man, this is it. So I stand up in the tree, and I turn around, and the tree's basically between me and the deer at this point because he comes in behind me, right? So I grab my bow off the, the bow hanger. I knock, or arrows oh, I already knocked. I grab the put the release on my loop, and I go to pull back. Well, he stops at this little over this sweeping limb that goes out into the corn, and he just would not come underneath that limb, and I thought it was hanging too low. And it, it was just shooting right into the, to the corn. Which it's on like a honey locust tree, so there's, you know, like the big wait-a-minute tree, you know what I'm talking about? hmm Like the tree you bump into and you say, oh, wait a minute, because it's in big, big thorns, like yes. Jesus thorns.
1: You know? Yes, yeah. So I,
0: like, I thought maybe that was stopping him from coming underneath there, all those thorns. So he stopped and he just turned around and walked back where he came from, went into the corn. And man, I was shaking so hard. Like you could, a pin oak just carries leaves a long time around here. And they were all brown, but they dried up. But you could just hear them leaves just shaking in the tree. (laughs) Holy cow, that was him. And I just missed my opportunity. So he filters back into the corn. So I hung my bow back up, sat back down took a couple deep breaths and just kind of settled in, waited a few minutes and it and it once again, it was probably I don't know fifteen, twenty minutes later. I picked up the grunt tube the can, hit them again three times, hit both of them three times like alternating and uh, and then I took the low eight point and smacked it together again and rattled a little bit, and hung it back up. I look over you know at the time I was turning around a little bit to my right towards the corn. So I look over my right shoulder this time, and I see a deer standing in that scrape again. But he's got his head up in a lick branch. So he's got his head up working a lick branch, and I thought it was the eight point. Well, here it was Beatty Buck, but I still didn't know what he was. You know, I just knew he was big. So he turns, and he starts walking down the fence row, and he gets, you know, at that time I'm, I'm grabbing my bow, and I'm keeping the tree between basically his face and mine. So I'm just trying to keep something between us. And the whole time, as soon as I seen he was a shooter, I just started looking at his body, you know, and I think that's what helped me really hold my composure through the whole event. I just put that tree between his head and mine and watched his body creep in, and when he got to that low sweeping limb, his body posture, you could tell it changed, and his, his knees buckled in the front like he like kneeled down and went underneath that limb. As soon as he went underneath that limb, I was pulling back, so I went to full draw. He comes out from underneath that limb, and he's got his head up in the air. And I never really looked at his at his snout because I, I was kind of focused, like, you know, peep sight pins, vitals. And when I'm looking through all that, I could just tell he was doing something. You know how, like, when you walk up to somebody that's got a hat on, and you can tell they got a hat on but, in a logo, but you don't really look at it?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Like, that, that's the sensation I had whenever he— I feel that he was lip curling. Like he had his, his mouth open. I could tell he was doing something, but I really never focused on it. So I'm assuming he was trying to taste, taste the air. Cause I had scent bombs further up the fence row about 10 or 15 yards up the fence row in, you know, and wicks hanging on the fence row. So I'm assuming the wind was hitting right in the face. So he came in from downwind. So I'm assuming that's what he was doing. But anyhow, it, it kind of all played out pretty quick, but he, if he's standing there. He's kind of taking like, like baby steps almost. Like he's I don't want to say he's prancing, but he was just like pushing his hoofs down. He's just like moving, and he's taking away my shot angle. So now I have no shot. So when he when he was turning, he was kind of turning to his left, which would have been my right, and I and I lost the angle going you know back through his vitals. So I just picked the spot like right on under his throat patch and tried to look at an angle that would get down into his boiler room so i put it right underneath his throat patch and just touch one off and it smacked and i mean it, it's like you hit the side of beef with a louisville slugger it just sounded so loud and i thought he spun around and took off running when he ran he ran back through that limb and then threw a bunch of other limbs down by that lick branch and all i could see was rack running away and to describe it it looks like when you're watching a hunting show, it's like watching an elk run away from you in a timber. He was just banging and cracking and hitting limbs as he was running away. So he runs off and he goes, I can see him go out down through the straw about, I don't know, probably about hundred yards and I've lost. Him. So I sat back down, sat there and just kind of thought, man, what am I going to do now? I know I feel like I put a good shot on him. So I tied off my bow, lowered it down grabbed my pack, packed everything up, got down to the base, of, undid my safety harness and got down to the base of the tree and I just kind of laid up against the tree and then slid down the tree and just sat there. And I was just sitting on my butt and I was just like, just started praying. I was just like, God, if you just let me find him, I'll be in church on Sunday. You know, just <laughs> anything I could say to just make it happen, you know. And, and man, I just, I was just nauseous because I didn't see him fall. So I get up I had enough of the angle of the cornfield, standing corn in front of me, that I knew he couldn't see me. And it had been drizzling rain earlier in the day, so it kind of like the, the field edge was wet, so I could slip around there a little bit and look for sign. So I walk over and I see where he was standing. You could see his hook prints and you can see where he turned like a cutting horse and spun out to go to run backwards, you know, back where he came from. So, right in that area, I looked around, and I could see one little white feather. And I'm like, oh, no. I had a, uh, one of the, at the time, it was Matthews had that z light out, that real light bow they always showed in the advertisements with the balloons and stuff holding it up. So, I I had a light that I bought used off a buddy of mine, and I had to restring it. Well, I had to do everything, it had a brand new setup, right, and the rest I had on it. The arrow was hitting the rest early season, and I fletched my own arrows and everything. I dipped them in white and had white feathers so I could see the the flight of the arrow because that was kind of before, like, lighted knocks and all that stuff was out, right? So I seen that white feather laying there, and when I was trying to sight the bow in earlier and get it all tuned up earlier in the season, I kept hitting the rest and it would slice one of the white feathers off, the, the hawk feather. It would slice it off, and the arrow would twirl, and I'd miss the target. So now I'm thinking the whole time that smack I heard was the arrow hitting a rock or the ground. So uh, that's like the first thing that went through my mind, and I'm just like ready to puke, right? Oh, geez. Um, and then all of a sudden I see this big half-moon spray of blood, real dark red blood. So then I just started smiling. I was like, yes, I got an arrow in him. So now I'm just wondering about my shot with that white feather. So I waited till dark, and uh, I started walking the field edge. And it was kind of, when I say a draw, it's like a grown-up pasture in between the cornfield and the hillside, and then another uh, fence row and beans. So I'm walking down through this grass, and, like, I'm going, like, every 10 yards, I'll set an arrow then I'll, you know, go another 10 yards, stick an arrow in the ground where I find blood. And then if I started running out of blood, I would stop and I would just go little circles and just keep bigger circles, bigger circles, bigger circles until I find the blood again, right? So, because now it's dark because I can't, I can't really see a long way and see landmarks where he went. So I got out to about, I, I would do like, you know, four arrows, lay my bow down, go get all my arrows, pick them all back up, do it again. So, I basically had my bow, quiver full of arrows, my backpack, and the light. So, I'm heading down through this draw, and I get down to the end of the draw. Well, that's probably about, I would guess, probably 200, 250 yards, and there's a fence rail, a high tensile fence. Well, I get down to this high tensile fence, and I hear a deer blow at me, and I'm like, oh, no, that's him. So, I got all this standing corn around, right? So, I'm like, I, I can't push this deer to Tim because you know the worst thing can happen is a combine finding so I stuck a arrow I just knocked it right on the high tensile fence and just left it there packed up all my stuff went all the way back to the truck and drove home so it's about 20 minutes to the house so I get to the house I go in I call every person I know and I'm like man I just shot a big deer how big is he I don't know. I can't tell you. He's just huge. Well, what's huge? Big. Because, you know, from Pennsylvania, I, being from Pennsylvania and cutting my teeth on, you know, a little bit smaller-sized deer that, you know, that's basically growing up on acorns and bark or whatever, browse, it, it's – it's. I was kind of ignorant to to what a big deer is or, or what a, a true Boone and Crockett-sized deer is. So I never really went to shows. You know, I just – gear shows so much. I just pretty much hunted for meat and, you know, filled tags. So I get like I said, I get home and I I started talking to all my buddies and And it what was sad was every friend was just, you know, go get him, he's dead. The next one would be like, Oh man, I'd wait. <laughs> next one would be like, go get him, he's dead. And I mean if I'd have <laughs> known you got, got got your opinion. So I'm just like Man, I don't know what to do. So, literally, I sat up all night on my couch in our family room watching ESPN reruns. And I'm sitting there watching ESPN, and it just lets loose. It starts raining. So, I open the garage door and look out at the streetlight, and it is just pouring buckets. And, I mean, literally, I just about drive. He just right there in the parking in the uh, driveway. So, I'm like, man, I don't know what I'm going to do now. I'm never going to find this gear. So, the next morning... My son had tests at school. My wife gets up and she says, you know, you should take Andrew with you. I said, well, doesn't he have tests? And she said, yeah, but just take him with you. And, you know, if you guys find it, just bring him back and drop him off at school and go back and get it. I said, okay. So we took the uh, the four-wheeler and him, and I went across this, uh, this field with him. And about halfway across, I, I kind of knew where I needed to go And I could see the high tensile fence, and I could see with binoculars, I could see my white fletching hanging on the fence, so I knew kind of where I was at. I'm looking in that direction, just past the fence, like he'd hopped the fence and died or up on the hill where the deer blew. And my son's like, Dad, Dad, and he's pulling on my shirt tail, and I'm like, yeah. He goes, he's right there. And I got down on his level, and I could, because he was just a little guy then, I could see across the field, and I could see up in this, this creek bottom, he was laying right there. So, you know, little Andrew was just my best buddy at that point, man. we took <laughs> off running. And uh, we get over there, and uh, this deer had jumped the fence. He was 29 paces from where I knocked the arrow because I paced it off what he was counting antlers. Wow. So I walked from the fence over to the deer. It was 29 paces. And I said, how many has he got, buddy? And he said, 41. I said, what? <laughs> I said, dude, you ain't going to pass your test today. And he started laughing. <laughs> oh, Dad, 41. Well, in Pennsylvania, you know, a lot of guys will probably tell you back in the day, if you can hang a wedding band on it, it counts as a point. Well, he was counting everything you could hang a ring on. And uh, there was 41, you know, points on it, but there wasn't that many scoreable points, you know. But, uh, man, what a what an adventure with him, you know.
1: Oh, wow. What, what what was that feeling like when you actually saw him? I mean, bef- before this, you had just thought he was a big buck. But when you walk up on him and he's, you know, this unworldly, monstrous buck, what was that moment like?
0: Well, you know, it, it, was, it was funny because where he died, he had, he looked like he had run into, like, this... You know how farmers will cut down trees in their pasture woods and they'll, like, stack it up along against a tree? He yep. fell into one of those and knocked one of the pieces of wood off, and it was wedged in between his rack, in the in the tips of his tines in the back, and he he had his head like upside down, like his bottom of his chin was facing towards the sky. So I like was trying to get this. Literally, I had to like kick this wood out of his rack just to get it to get him spun around. And when I did that, I picked him up, and he was so heavy. And like I said, man, it's you're talking about you know somebody that's never killed giant deer before. I didn't know what to think. I mean, I just thought, holy cow! I I never dreamed that they would grow this big around here. <laughs> and I mean, he was just a giant. He just heavy. Like his his rack was his head. Like everything was heavy. And I was just like, holy cow! But yeah, I don't know, man. It was just it was it was really cool that you know me and Andrew was there and you know, it was just barely breaking daylight enough that you could see the white on his belly. When Andrew seen him across the stream, and Andrew took the first and only field photo. Um, it's, it's floating around on the internet somewhere, but it's, it looks dark. But, I mean, back then it's like cameras weren't, you know, aren't what they are today, you know, and it just looked like a dark picture and man, just all kind of rumors started flying then. But I mean, it was just, it is what it is. It's overcast and in the woods that, um, yeah, it was just a really good feeling, obviously, that, you know, I just arrowed the biggest deer in my life. But I still, at that point, I still had no idea what I had. You know, I, I drove, well, I walked straight over to the truck, got the four-wheeler come over, loaded him up, you know, got him back to the truck, got everything loaded. And it just so happens that the Division of Wildlife is a check-in station back when we had to put metal tags on our deer. Well, it was on the way home. Their their district office is right here in Xenia. so I just swung in there and asked them if they could come out and tag us deer. Well, it was funny the guy the guy that worked there at the time his name was Dan. Also, he he went out with a clipboard and he said, you know, how how many points is it? He come out from behind the counter and I said, I'm not really sure, but I I think it's 38. And and he said, what? And I said, yeah. So he went out to the truck and I had like an F-150 that was lifted up a little bit. And he climbed up, he was a little short guy, he climbed up on the back of the truck and he's kind of looking down in the truck and part of the rack sticking up above the truck because it was a pretty wide, you know, deer. So he's looking in and he's like, he's like trying to count and he's like holding his chin like he's trying to count again and like trying to figure it out and he starts scratching his head and he just like dropped his clipboard and everything and just jumped down off the truck and took off running back towards the building. I was like crap what's going on did one of them fall off or what what's he running for well he came in and then that's when it all started like he's literally the guy that took the picture of me in the back of the truck holding on to the drop times so and then from there it kind of exploded like everybody in the division went out and started looking at it and then you know it wasn't you know too much longer after that I mean it just like everybody started showing up at the house and just Phone started ringing off the hook, and it
3: just got busy.
2: Yeah, I got a question. Did you, when you went in to hunt this property, did you know that this buck was there, or was there rumblings by the neighbor of this buck in the area?
0: Uh, negative, as far as me seeing this buck or knowing the buck was there. But as far as neighbors, I didn't know anyone out there, so I just got permission at yeah. 150 some acres of property that's split by a road. One side had woods, one side had field, wide open field, and a little bit of wood fence row, and woods on each end. So I never really talked to too many of the neighbors.
1: Gotcha. So so obviously killing a buck like this is, is incredible. It was a once-in-a-lifetime experience. I'm sure it was an amazing time. Um, but you also talked about like rumors that happened and how all this kind of exploded and all this kind of stuff. Were there some downsides to this whole thing too? I mean, did this cause a lot of stress in your life or were you able to kind of get past that pretty quickly?
0: Well, you know, I, I always, you know, give my wife the most credit. And, you know, obviously my kids, they got older. But, you know, my wife, being she's a good woman and she keeps me on a straight and narrow path. You know what I mean? So I, as long as I've got somebody behind me that helps me deal with the day to days when all this happened. That's where we. That's how we kind of dealt with the stress. We kind of made it fun for the kids, like, "Hey, we're going to go to another show this weekend. You, you ready to go?" You know, and, and then after, you know, shoot, it's been seven, sixteen years, seventeen years. It's now it's like, you know, nobody wants to go to shows. With you. you know what I mean? It's just like it's it's old news around here. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it, it was it was pretty stressful and hectic at first. As far as downside, um. Just not not really being able to talk to anyone that this has happened to before, like i couldn't i couldn't call Mark or Dan and bounce you know questions off of you. like, hey, you know should I do this deal? or should i should I go to this show? Is this a good show you know so far or you know whatever or how's the lot and i I had no one I could bounce any of that stuff off of um Milo Hansen um great dude. Uh when I met him for the first time, you know, it was it was like, you know, meeting a ball player, is, you know, a pro. Um I just man, I really picked his brain a lot and he was so helpful. Uh Gordon Whittington from North American Whitetail. I I'm, I'm sure I would, hands down he had to be the most help initially of anyone in the industry. Um that dude is just so full of knowledge. It's it's just ridiculous.
1: Yeah.
2: So what is, what is the financial gain if someone shoots a giant buck? Like everybody, everybody is always wants to shoot one, but I mean, there's also a opportunity for you and your family to make some money off this, uh, this endeavor. What's, what's that like? Walk us through that a little bit.
0: Oh man, it's just more taxes, you know? No, I'm just, <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Really? I'm just playing. Um, it's it's just supplemental income. I mean, I I worked for the phone company before I shot this deer, and I'm still working for the phone company. So, and right. willing to take that next step and and jump off the ship of res- for me responsibility with my family and holding down a full time job with benefits to to be a provider and, and giver to them. Um, unless you're willing to like, if you're a single guy, it, it you probably could have went and made a career out of, you know, hunting shows or having your own show, uh, having your own podcast now. I mean, it, technology's changed, but um, it's always changing. But I don't know. It's 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 tough because I never really wanted to, like, what happens if, if Dan shoots shipwreck and it scores 404, you know, or 307? Then what happens to to Mike Beatty trying to provide for his family and his, his you know his, yeah. his wife and
3: kids? So that
0: always like lingered in the back of my mind. Like I, I really need to watch and really tiptoe what I'm doing, try not to paint myself into a corner, so to speak, and and just be a little bit more you know responsible, I guess.
2: I guess what I was asking was, you were getting paid to take him to shows and and showcase this buck to crowds of people, right? Sure. Okay. All right. Cool. Yeah.
0: yeah no. And, and, and you know, you you basically at that point, um, if it's an attraction, it's a draw for the for the uh, the public, right? So at that that's point, right.
2: Yeah.
1: For a promoter
0: would would contact me, and they would say, "Look, you know, we'd love to have you as a draw for our show," and you know, I would say, "Well, okay, what, you know, what is the the compensation package for this this weekend or what have you?" And they would just throw a bunch of stuff out there, whether it's room and board you know, food and lodging and X amount of dollars per day for shows. I mean, it's, it's probably no different than, uh, I tr- I try to kind of compare it to like Kevin Van Dam from, from the BASS tour, you know, just yeah. the vast mass. So it's just, it's kind of having somebody there that's done something that everybody wants to hear about. So you're just a draw at that point.
1: So, so I'm curious, uh, Mike, I've got a buddy who killed what at one point was a state record whitetail um, for the state he was hunting. And he very shortly after killing that buck, you know, just like your deer, it gained a lot of notoriety, um, a lot of people talking about it, and it ended up negatively impacting his hunting because people found out where he killed that buck, and everybody wanted to hunt there, and so there was all these other people kind of flocking in in his spots. Have you experienced anything like that, whether it be right after you killed the, the giant or in the years since? Do you have an issue with people always trying to get in on your stuff or losing your hunting ground or anything like that?
0: <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's still happening to this day. Sam Calor is still trying to hunt in my backyard. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah. I'm just, I'm just kidding. Yeah, it it still happens to this day. I, and I'll find properties and, you know, it's it's kind of sad in a way because i get it people want to hunt deer and some people know that where the deer was killed some people don't and they just want to hunt so you know i don't fault anybody for trying to take up this sport i mean we need as as many hunters as we can get um the the public properties around here are just overrun i mean it's kind of like pennsylvania it's just it's tough to find a, a nice secluded spot where it's not pressured um so yeah there that still happens to this day
1: all right, so we are going to take a very brief break here for our weekly segment with Whitetail Properties. Now let our producer, Spencer Newharth, take it from here.
2: This week with Whitetail Properties, we are joined by Dave Skinner, a land specialist out of southern Kentucky. And Dave is going to be telling us about affordable habitat improvement.
3: You know, the biggest thing, buy a chainsaw, and, uh,
0: or if you already own one, put it to use, Uh, Timber stand improvement is is a great way to improve habitat, and it'll pay you dividends from the timber value um, that that is increased by going and removing those inferior trees. um, Reducing the canopy increases the sunlight to the forest floor, which naturally grows cover that also equals food. Um, And, you know, the big thing is right now, do it now before spring green up so that you're going to get a flush of growth um, this
2: summer and spring as things are growing.
1: If you'd like to learn more and to see the
2: properties that Dave currently has listed for sale, visit whitetailproperties.com
1: backslash skinner. That's S-K-I-N-N-E-R. And finally, we've got another quick update from our partners at Huntera Maps about the recently launched Huntera mobile map. Here's Huntera founder Ben Harshine with more details about their new digital offering.
4: Well the mobile map has three important features to it. And the first one is that you can drop pins for any points of interest. Uh, The most common ways you would use this would be marking all of your stands, trail cameras, uh, blinds, scrapes, rubs, any of those points of interest. You can drop pins on the mobile map, change their color, label them, group them together, uh, all kinds of things that you can do with labeling your point features. The second thing that you can do is measure distances and areas. So if you want to understand how far a certain shot may be, or if you want to understand how big a certain area is, or a certain shape of, you're thinking about designing the, the shape of a food plot a couple of different ways, and you want to understand the acreage of it, you can do that with the measure tool. And then third, which is what is, I think, the most exciting, is that it has GPS tracking ability. And what that means is that, because the map is GPS-enabled and it requires zero cell service, anywhere in the world this will work, as you walk around, that little blue dot will follow you. Well, when you're doing GPS tracking and you hit start, as you walk, it'll trace that track. It's insanely accurate, and I actually used it last year whenever I was grid searching for a deer that I I shot, the, the infamous pork buck. I shot him on November November 7th and ended up tracking him on November 8th. And uh, I used this feature to determine where I looked for him and where I didn't. And the reason is because the property was, the area of the property that I was on was so thick that I was literally crawling through briars. So uh, the GPS track will tell you where you went. And another really cool application, and it's applicable right now, is that it, it is. Uh, we're in the thick of shed season, and you can have this map on your phone and literally know everywhere you've walked for sheds and where you haven't yet. So that, that's really cool. There's endless amounts of applications with the GPS tracking, um, and it's, uh, it's definitely the ultimate, what well, we think, the mobile maps is the ultimate navigation and, and, and scouting tool.
1: To learn more or to customize and order your own Huntera mobile map, visit Huntera.com. That's H-U-N-T-E-R-R-A. And from now through April 20th, 2017, Wired Hunt listeners can get 10% off their total order and a free mobile map with every printed map order by using the code Wired, W-I-R-E-D. That's 10% off your order and a free mobile map. And now we will get back to the show. Yeah, I imagine that's tough. So so let's fast forward a little bit. We've been talking about 2000, but um, you mentioned a couple things that you did during that hunt that you realize now were maybe mistakes, you know, like hunting the same spot over and over and over some things along those lines. So now it's been 15, 16, 17 years. And I know you've continued to kill some really nice mature bucks. So I'm curious to hear now, how would you describe your hunting style today and how has it changed since that point?
0: Oh, it's, it's, it it's very different now. I still, the only similarity would probably be that I still to this day where I hunt, it's mainly fields and fence rows. So a lot of people that come here and hunt with me, um, they're just shocked that there's not very many woods. So I try and and hunt funnels, pinch points, and it has changed tremendously because, you know, obviously, you know, you try to try to become a a smarter hunter, especially as you you get older. Um, but I, you know, I don't know, like maybe, uh, like post-season, like, it, you know, season just ended here, you know, what, a month ago, almost two months ago now. And, and I'll i get out and I'll try and, you know, shed hunt right away um, just to see, you know, what what made it, um, what's in the inventory for the following year. Um, I try and still run cameras uh, a, few, a few weeks, if not a few months after the season just to kind of monitor uh, the deer herd to see what kind of shape they're in physically. And if, if they, if they run down and like stressed out, if you would, um, i scout for, you know, new trails and bedding areas, uh, do a lot of stand, stand removal and maintenance, you know, and this is all right after season has ended within those first couple of months before turkey season. So, and then spring, you know, I, I, I focus a lot on water sources, um, throughout the spring, summer and fall, um, if, if I have a farm that doesn't have a water source, I make a water source. Um, uh, neighbors probably think I'm a little nuts sometimes because I I'll run 25 gallons of fresh water to every one of my water tanks every week. Wow! And I, I try and try and give my deer a, a fresh water source, a healthy water source.
1: Can you can you talk um, about how you make those watering holes?
0: Sure. I about have strokes. You know, as I get older, I'm <laughs> eating Um I just no, seriously, I just take a, you know, like a hundred gallon Rubbermaid tub, and I'll I'll dig that in to where it's sticking about six to eight inches out of the ground, and I kind of just keep it full of water, and then I've got lines on it down to, you know, I know what line is, is 25 gallons low. If it's not low, I'll I'll take a bucket with me, an empty bucket, and I'll dip water out, and then I'll fill it back up. Um Maybe once every three weeks to four weeks, I'll put mosquito dunks in it and uh, like algae, uh, algae tablets. Like I, I try and keep the water fresh. like I don't like mosquito larvae in my water. I'm trying to keep good, fresh, clean water, and I and I fill it with well water every week.
1: So, are you doing this primarily just as something to? you know, help provide a healthier environment for the local deer. And you're just hoping deer are going to stay in that general area more so because of it. Or is it like these are specifically placed near stand setups because you're hoping to catch a deer coming in to to drink there when you're hunting?
0: A little bit of both. I mean, a little bit of both. I've not, I don't know why, you know, just quirky, I guess. I just, I've never really shot a deer as he's drinking. I like always let him drink and then get done and then, you know, put an arrow through him or whatever. But, um, but yeah, I, I I typically do it just for the health of the herd. Um, I that's mainly all I do it for. Now, are they strategically placed that I can utilize them and to my benefit? You know, come fall,
2: yes. Okay. Have you seen a direct re, like a direct result in the health of your herd because you implemented these drinking stations?
0: Um. I believe so. I, well, I would like to think so. Um, we haven't had an outbreak of like, you know, EHD or blue tongue or any of that stuff. That And, uh, you know, I went to Division of Wildlife down the road, and I said, before I started, I said, listen, here's my plan. I want to start a water source for my deer, but I don't want to take any chance of giving, giving them any type of disease. So what can I do? And they asked me what I was doing, and I told them. And they said, listen, you're probably giving them better water than what they're drinking out of these streams around here. So that made me feel good. So I can tell you that that our deer seem to to get through most of the summer. And, like, they're, our deer look really healthy. Like, I don't know how, to, how else to explain it than that. They just look really healthy. They're thick. They're muscular. They're, you know, they're just heavy. And I I like to think that. You know, Ohio is ninety percent food plot. You know, they got corn and soybeans and alfalfa and timothy and I mean, name it, clover. Just everything's all over because there's farmers here. So I think I think they do sustain a little bit better throughout the year because they have fresh water and, and a lot of food.
1: Yeah, it's, it's funny you mentioned the, the whole water source thing because this is something I was actually thinking about just last night. Um, in my case, I was thinking about using these just as one more small thing I can do to try to improve a couple of my stand yep. setups that are in these little isolated food plots. And, you know, I've already, you know, first year when i put these food plots in it was i've got food and then a couple of years later i was trying to figure out ways to tweak it a little bit more and now i've planted you know fake scrape trees in that food plot to try to get a deer to possibly come into shooting range a little more likely with that and now this year i think you know one more thing i can do is i'm going to put in some water some little water tanks in each of these spots too just you know maybe it's going to give me a one percent better chance that the deer i'm after might choose to come in here during daylight but um that's something I'm going to try this year. So it's interesting to hear that's worked for you.
0: Oh yeah. Yeah. It it definitely has. Um, I'll, I'll kind of pick a day of the week that works for me, um, to, to go water. And, uh, that's typically when I check a camera, if it's, you know, if it's an SD card that I got to change out, you know, obviously if it's wireless and, you know, I don't mess with it, but, um, but yeah, I'll, I'll try and pick a day and then I'll just, I'll leave the, the quad running while I'm filling, you know, fresh water. And I I don't stray far from the quad. Like, I don't walk around. I don't go anywhere to look for more sign. I already know the deer are there. I'm getting pictures of them. I'm not stressing them out. I'm not pressuring them. But to me, you know, every time you get busted, that equals pressure. And in my opinion, pressure equals little to, to no mature deer encounters, yeah. if that makes any sense.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it definitely does. So can you elaborate a little bit on, um, you mentioned how you're using trail cameras there and you're being careful about when you check them. Can you tell us a little bit more about the specifics of, um, you know, how you're using those cameras in the summer and then how that changes during the hunting season. And then again, you know, maybe how are you changing where you place them? How are you doing different things differently?
0: Well, I mean, you know, it's no secret. Everybody, everybody tries to get pictures of their deer, you know, and, and, my thing is I, I try not to go in more than I have to. Like, I definitely try not to pressure the deer. Um, in in the summer, um, it's a little bit different because, like I said, I'm filling water. And I'm, like, the deer pattern us, right? So they probably pattern us more than we pattern them, no doubt. So I try not to, to do anything other than do what I need to do and get out of there. But I try and let them know that I'm there leaving the quad running, um, filling the water, I'm I'm praying it that my my thought process is that, that that's training the deer to know that there's water there now, or, you know, that, you know. So, so when I train them to know that there's water there, then I get out of there. While I'm there, if it's an SD card, I'll change it out if I'm right beside it, and I'm wearing rubber, rubber boots that sprayed down, you know, or haven't touched anything but dirt. Um, so I, I try to to not leave any scent, not pressure the deer, try and train them when I'm there, when I'm putting out their, their, you know, alternative food source or minerals in the summer or water, uh, fresh water. And then, you know, I get out of there. Well, I, you know, I've actually seen like, I used to do this, this spray, like when I would start a brand new site with cameras, I, especially out of state, I would take like a a sprayer, like a, uh, a bug sprayer, I guess, or a lawn sprayer, just uh, one you would carry with a little handle, push-down handle, pump. And I would, I would mix up. I would, I would call it booty juice, but I would mix up like, you know, concentrates of like I would almost bring to a boil, like bananas, um, apples, uh, pears. Sometimes, uh, sometimes I'd mix in like grape juice or great uh, Kool-Aid mix. And I would make up this mixture of concentrate, and I would mix it with water when i get down to wherever these uh, new locations were, maybe out of state, for an example. And I would spray down everything as high as I could reach all around me. And I would literally have deer on that camera within 20 minutes after I leave. Wow. And it was from spraying down and getting the scent in that area, that sweet aroma and scent, and they were curious. They would come out, and they would start nipping at the leaves that it was on, and I would just get a bunch of pictures within, you know, 20 minutes to a half an hour after leaving that location.
4: <laughs>
0: so, so to answer your question, I use the cameras on field edges, uh, new locations around the water, uh, new locations out of state, you know, like a new set just to see if there's anything in the area initially. Um, and then obviously I keep file after file after file on the computer, um, a couple of different files on the phone of just pictures of deer that, that may be on, you know, my hit list, I guess you'd call it. So then I will just take inventory. And then as the season goes on, um, you know, maybe I'm not, if I'm walking by that camera, I'm checking it. It doesn't matter if it's two days later or two weeks later. If I'm walking by, I got an extra SD card in my pocket and I'm flip, switching out those chips. However, if I'm not walking by it and I really want to think that this you know, this location's getting hot because I can maybe see it from the road or or, or some some way I, I just feel that this is this time of the year, this, this location really gets hot. I'll go ahead and go in there at night. That way if I bump my deer, they're not bumping over onto the neighbors and getting whacked in the daylight. I bump them at night. And then they, they typically don't know what I am because I'm on a quad. So they just run off. Sometimes I'll have a headlamp on. They'll run off like 30, 40 yards and just stand there and watch me. And I'll change out the chip and they'll come right back in and come around there and start feeding the food plot or what have you.
2: So when it's, when it's time to go hunting, are you using that four-wheeler again um, so they feel comfortable? Or are you now dropping the four-wheeler and making, uh, I guess, a normal walk into your tree stand location?
0: It, it depends. It depends on where it's at in the, in the situation. Obviously, some places you don't want to take the quad in as much. Um, if I don't have a reason to have the quad in there, I won't take the quad in there. If it's, I typically always walk to my stands. Um, a couple years ago, I, I started riding a bicycle once in a while, but it's just it just kind of gets cumbersome because you know where I'm riding, it's not really conducive to to trails. But I, uh, you know, you can't really ride through a bean field. You know what I'm saying? So. But, yeah, I, I just uh, – I'll lose the quad as far as – when it comes to hunting time, I'm walking. Um, a big thing with walking, you know, I, I've learned – I keep learning. You know, we, we keep evolving. Um, technology, more technology comes out, the, the more I learn. Um, like, you know, I know you guys are familiar with Sitka gear. I, some of their, their stuff, I, I layer now. So I'm a big fan of layering now. And I've learned that through working with the guys from Sitka. So as the season goes on, I'm carrying more and more layers in my pack. And my big thing is when I'm walking in and I tell you I'm walking, I'm not using a quad anymore, I'm not getting all, you know, what I call skunked up. I'm not getting all sweaty, stinky from walking and sweating because I'm walking in thin layers. And then as the temperatures drop or the evening gets here and the sun goes down, I just throw another jacket on or a vest or the jacket, you know, whatever I have in my pack.
1: Speaking of, um, speaking of access, you mentioned that a lot of the spots you hunt are big fields and fence rows and stuff like that. So I'm curious, how do you handle access to those types of locations? Um, because, you know, I imagine in a lot of those situations it's kind of tough to get in there without having to walk across a field sometimes, whether it be in the morning or in the evenings after you hunt, how do you deal with getting good access and exit strategies in those kind of wide open environments without blowing everything out every time you go in and out?
0: Well, the first thing I do is I, I obviously start hunting from the fringes and, you know, I, I just stay out of wherever I think the core area is at, or I make a core area, I stay out of that unless it's dark. If it's dark and I have to go look for a deer that, you know, a family member or friend has arrowed or has drawn blood on, then I'll go in there, but I only go in at dark. I won't, won't go in there in daylight. So that's one thing to hunt the fringes. Um, obviously i i only hunt when the wind's in our favor so if if the wind's not in our favor i can't go in that way i can't hunt that stand so and as far as access i i try and you know talk to to neighboring landowners to maybe park on their property and just you know just get a a trespasser's right or whatever you want to call it where i can just gain access to walk across one of their fence rows to get to my fence row then slip in you know I call it ease of access, whatever's the easiest way in, easiest way out without being detected.
1: Yeah. That makes sense. Do do you ever have to um you know, I, I get this question a lot and I've had to deal with it too, where you've got deer out in a field and you know, how, how do you, how do you deal with deer around your stand? You know, when you're done hunting, do you just wait it out and wait till they disappear? Or do you do things to try to spook them off without them realizing it's a hunter? Um, how do you handle those such situations?
0: <laughs> it, it just, like I said, it depends on the scenario, but you know, most of the time in the mornings, I just wait, I just wait until they move off. Um, if it's late, late morning, I just wait. I just don't get down. I don't spook them. I sit as still as I can. I try not to move. Um, as far as evening, once it gets dark, um, if they're still fairly close and there's you know just a, a few does out there or what have you or a couple small bucks, I'll take like a water bottle and chuck it high in the air away from me and let it hit close to them and they just scatter. And then eventually they'll just walk off. They they typically don't blow. Like they just, they don't know what it is and they run off and they just stand there and they just mill off the other way.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That seems like the ideal is, is to get them to move off without them realizing that there's some type of danger close by. But, uh, man, yeah. sometimes that's easier said than done. I've had a few times where I've tried things like that, throwing things or making the coyote howl and, uh, you occasionally get those deer that just get curious and then they just hang out and keep looking around and looking around and that can end up being a yeah. long night. <laughs> Um, yeah, no,
0: I've said I've an hour past dark before waiting, and they just threw a water bottle, and they still don't leave, and I'm still waiting. And yeah. then, you know, of course.
2: Now you're thirsty.
0: <laughs> oh, big, big Daddy steps out, and, you know, you can't shoot. You can't. All my gears at the base of the tree are already lowered down. I just can't move, so I still sit there. My wife will be texting me. Phone's blowing up. Unfortunately, you just got to sit.
1: Yeah, yeah. Speaking of, speaking of Big Daddy or the Big Buck, what. What kind of goals do you have now, Mike? Um, because you've killed, you know, probably most likely the biggest buck of your life. So now when you're hunting, is it you're just looking for a certain size or age of a deer, or do you hunt for a specific buck? Or What's your thought process there now?
0: I, I kind of change it up. I mean, I, you know, you got to make it interesting for yourself. You can't, you know, get away from that. And, and I haven't at this point. Um, I always look for an older deer. I mean, I'm not, you know, I don't have, you know, the acreage that some hunters have where I can let a deer grow to six, seven years old. I just, I just don't have that. Um, I try and take inventory of, of the deer herd and I typically try to go for the biggest buck. But if that bigger buck is only three and a half and the older buck's four and a half or vice versa, you know, bigger buck's four and a half and the older buck's five and a half, I'll let the bigger buck go. To shoot the older buck in most cases because I want them to get as mature as possible. Um, I had both instances this year and I let the deer walk. He was five and a half. Uh, At four and a half, he was an eight point with one drop time. It was about two inches long. At five and a half, he was an eight point with four drop times, so a 12 point. And all four drop times were, you know, the longest one was like three and the other ones were like two and one inch, and I, I didn't want to shoot him. I had him at one of my water tanks for an hour in front of me and videoed the whole thing, and I just did not shoot him because I wanted to see what he would be next year. If he grew, if he went from one drop tine to four drop tines, I thought, holy cow, what what's he going to be next year with, you know, five or six inch drop tines? He's going to be a stud, you know, just something to really write about. Wow. And unfortunately, the neighbor shot him.
1: Ah. So, <laughs> So it goes, isn't it? yeah, yeah, yeah. Sometimes. So, so in a situation like that, though, let's let's hypothetically say that the buck didn't get killed by a neighbor. You you got pictures of him maybe after the season, and now you know he's the deer that you really want this coming season. What would your you know? I know you've described kind of some generic things when it comes to scouting, but. What would your hunting season strategy look like? If you're going into the two, 2017 year, it's opening day, and you know that buck is alive, how would your season kind of progress? How would you be thinking about things if you were after one deer like that?
0: Um, I would say I would probably um, still hunt the fringes. At, well, before season come in, I would absolutely be scouting from a distance and just getting as, gathering as much intel as possible where the deer's coming out, what field, what corner of the field, what was the wind like, what time of the day was it, and so on. So I would be gathering intel, and I actually carry like a little, I don't want to say a diary, you know, but just like a little notebook, and I'll, I'll flip through, and I'll just start writing down like the date, time, what what deer encounters I had, and I do that typically every season. It just stays in my pack. So I uh, I would do that first, and then you know, second, and obviously, I would be making sure my, my trail cameras, if I'm picking him up on one particular farm, I'm starting to shy away from checking that trail camera once a week unless, once again, I have to refill the water tank. If he's coming to the water tank and he's drinking that fresh water, I am not changing any tactics. I'm staying on that water once a week, checking the camera, and then, you know. I may end up having someone come in. Fill the water that day when season comes in, and I slip off the you know the quad and up into the tree watch running, and then he takes off and leaves. I've done that before.
1: Yeah. So, yes. I mean, it just
0: it just really depends on the situation, but but yeah, I I've, I targeted uh, not this past season but season before I actually targeted uh, about 160 some odd inch ten point, and I I knew where that deer was living, I knew where he was sleeping. Um, all from a distance, getting really pressuring, and uh, I hunted on the fringe, and wouldn't you know it, early season, he come walking by on the fringe, right past the cedar tree I was in, and all kind of cover, he had no idea I was there, and you know, double lunging, 60 yards later I had my hands on him.
1: That's that's awesome. Can you can you tell us about um you mentioned you're in a in a cedar tree. Can you talk about the things you typically look for in a stand setup? You know, is there any type of tree or is there any type of you know, do you like to be up at a certain height or things like that that you like to particularly try to make happen when you're putting a tree in a stand or standing in a tree? Yeah.
0: Yeah, I well I there's a, there's a couple things when it comes to stand placements. like like I I'm not afraid to to pick a day in a you know in midsummer when it's really hot middle of the day like i'll spend most of the midday setting a set uh, like i'll go out I'll, I'll, I'll already know kind of what tree i want to get in i'll I always you know put my sticks together on the ground lay them up against the tree all in one section i'll take a ratchet strap around the tree and ratchet it down then put the strap on for the for the step the climbing sticks and cinch it down tight and then pop the ratchet strap and man that thing's really cinched down tight against the tree it's no loosey-goosey stuff right so i spend a lot of time doing that because i want to be as quiet and stealthy as possible climbing in and out of that tree i don't want anything creaking crackling none of that uh, metal popping Um, so then i get up in the tree obviously you know i've got like a lineman uh, harness and i throw the rope around the tree and, and belt off, and then I start hanging my set. I'll hang my set, get up, and, and then start trimming my shooting lanes. When I trim my lane, I I take my time. And if I have to climb up and down that tree 50 times, I'll do it. But, you know, who needs CrossFit at that point, right? So I, I'll, uh, <laughs> I'll take my time trimming shooting lanes and then, uh, you know, pack it up for the day and get out of there and not have to worry about messing with it anymore.
1: Yeah. Yeah, that can be uh, that can be frustrating when you're a one man person, when you're a single person trying to deal with shooting lanes, and you're going up and down, up and down, up and down. It's yeah, always nice when you got someone.
0: Yeah. Well, the other thing I do too is when I'm when I'm trimming those lanes, um, I I typically don't cut the tree limbs all the way out of my way. Like I'll just almost like uh, almost like hinge cut them. I'll just cut them a little bit and let them fall down just enough out of my way. And I I don't, like, I save as much cover as possible.
1: Yeah. Make sure you you stay hidden up in that tree. That makes sense. Yeah, because
0: once again, I'm in the Midwest. I'm in open fields and and fence rows. You run out of cover really quick when fall gets here.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I bet. So you you talked about earlier how a lot of that beginning part of the season, you're focused on the fringes. And sometimes, like, that one year, uh, two years ago, that works out and they you're able to get a shot a deer early in the fringes type area but what happens when you get to the rut um you still haven't killed a buck yet down there you talked about funnels and pinch points um briefly but can you elaborate on what your rut hunting strategy looks like what specifically like what types of funnels or pinch points are you actually hunting down in that part of the country and what other things are you doing at that time of year
0: well mainly mainly the contour of the land is, would be my what i would base my funnels or pinch points on and the the I use the fence rows to my advantage. So the deer are going to travel those fence rows or fairly within bow range of those fence rows to keep from going out into the open fields. So, you know, once again, I only hunt when the, when the wind's in my favor. And I, you know, it doesn't really matter to me, you know, how much scent control you practice. You still, you know, you, a deer can breathe in one breath and, you know, he's breathing in like five or six different scents that he can tell apart. So I'm I'm practicing good scent control, you know, um, just making sure that that I'm in an area that the wind is is in my favor the best. And then as far as like, you know, I, I use cover scents like um, during the rut and, and even preseason. Like if a deer is going to smell me, I I would rather them smell something else that that gets their mind off of me and my scent. Even though I practice good scent control. Um, we were talking earlier about, you know, layering. Like, my I learned so much on, you know, I was telling you, I don't know, a couple weeks ago at, at that show I seen you at about an Alaska trip. I, I was dumbfounded by how merino wool worked with scent control. So now I apply merino wool to my base layer, my skin layer, and I'll take, like, two sets and I rotate them every hunt. And then every two weeks, I wash them in nonsense soap and air dry them and start to process all over again. So I'm really trying to practice good scent control by, by using that merino wool as my base layer, right? So then I get in. Well, what if the deer can smell something that's, that's not quite right? I don't want it to be my smell, so I try and mask that smell. So I'll use a cover scent, and I'll use a cover scent like coon urine. So raccoons are, from coast to coast, they're, they're everywhere, right? So everywhere a whitetail's at, you see a raccoon. So I'll use raccoon urine, and I call it like three points of contact. So I'll put a a spray at at my feet level, at my waist level, and then above my head if I stand up in a tree. So, But I put the the, uh, raccoon urine on the actual tree. I never spray it on my person because I don't want to contaminate my clothes at that point. You know what I'm saying? So I'll use cover scents. And then when it comes time for rut, I'll use lower scents, what I call lower scents. I'll use, like, Sam's got some tremendous urine at uh, Mrs. the uh, Dough and Heat. I'll use that occasionally on, like, a, a drag rag, or I'll use it with scent wicks and place them about 15 feet apart in, like, a triangular pattern or a square so where it's it's blowing, like, a, a bigger uh, sheet of scent, if you would, down into, like, their bedding. Or up a fence row. And then every once in a while, I've, I've had some luck using uh, the landmine, which is a bottle of urine you just bury. So I've, I've had some luck with that. I killed, killed my 13 point issue off of, off the landmine. So uh, as far as rut tactics, cover sense, uh, lure sense, rattling, I'll do some rattling, um, calling. I still to this day use the can from Primos, I'll use a uh, grunt tube. And I try and mimic, you know, a, a doe and a buck, you know, mating. So they're, they're mating calls to each other. Um, as far as rattling, uh, seems like earlier in the season I just kind of tinkle the antlers together and get, you know, a little bit more aggressive as the season goes on and gets into a rut. Um, I typically start at the, at the top of the tree with me, like hanging on my pack. And just tinkle them together like right before dark or something. It just to me it mimics a couple of younger bucks just kind of sparring out there early season, trying to you know, filter out who's going to be the man. And then you know sometimes it'll work where a nice big mature buck will just step out to see what's going on. And then as the season gets closer to rut or in the middle of rut, like I'll rattle, y'all you know, tinkle it first in case something's close, and I don't want to spook them off, you know. So. If nothing's close in the thickets around me, then I'll, I'll start really getting on them with the, with the antlers. And then I'll tie them off to my pull-up rope, you know, prior to rattling and I'll just lower my pull-up rope down to the ground. And then I just, just like I'm jigging while I'm fishing, I just pull up and let them fall and let them hit and clash together in the leaves. And man, that's, that's been a really good tactic for me. Hmm.
1: I've heard about people doing that and I've never tried it myself, but, um, it makes sense. I mean, there's, you get that added noise of the leaves, and different things like that. And then you, you got that sound right down there at ear level for deer. Um, that's, that's interesting. Um, yeah. And they come,
0: when they come in, they come in quick and they come in
1: with their head down,
0: looking down instead of up in my general direction. If I'm rattling in a tree,
1: Hmm. do you ever use decoys or anything at that time of year?
0: Um, I have, and I've never had any luck in this area with decoys. Um, it kind of turns my deer inside out. I mean, I've tried everything from, you know, different, you know, uh, manufacturers of decoys. I've tried different decoys, uh, I've tried, you know, white, uh, like tissue paper or something on it, on, on the tail to give it a little bit of movement. I mean, I've tried it all. And it just seems like there's always like that, those one or two mature does that come out there that just go inside out, and they seem to just want to stand there all night and blow it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and and I'm just like, I'm done. So yeah. I I typically don't use them any. I tried hard for like four or five years. I really gave it a value and effort and just no luck at all.
1: Yeah. It always does seem like one of those high-risk, high-reward type things. And uh, I always worry about that risk, too. But, uh. But when it happens, I, I finally had luck this past year pulling it off. It was pretty cool when it all came together. But there were a whole lot more unsuccessful attempts uh, before that. So I get where you're coming from.
0: Yeah, I mean, you know, and then you, you see, like, Stan Potts. He'll st- sit out there in Iowa and Illinois, and man deer will just come in there and just they'll get in a bar fight with these decoys. <laughs> and I'm like, where's the does? You know, yeah. why aren't they blowing out
1: to me? But, yeah. Yeah. So uh so Dan, what do you, what are you thinking over there? What do you want to know?
2: Well, all this talk's got me uh getting fired up for this upcoming yeah. season, right? So <laughs> thank you for after this podcast, I'm going to go, you know, try to have a conversation with my wife about something <laughs> that's not deer hunting, and in my head I'm going to be thinking one thing and saying something completely out, different. <laughs> right? Yeah. I guess I, I do have a question though for you sure. that moment you killed that big buck right back in 2000 to today and and learning what you've learned and, you know, adjusting your tactics and you have your your own, you know, the, the path that you take throughout a season and listening to other guys maybe tell their story or, or talk to you over the years. Do you think there's one particular thing um, and not necessarily one because I know as, as bow hunters, we make a lot of mistakes and we have to be able to learn from those mistakes. But do you feel that there is a common mistake, um, the average hunter makes throughout a year that, um, that if they just maybe tweaked that one way or the other, they'd be more successful? Uh,
0: I would probably have to say, probably pressure. And I just it just seems like over the years, if if I haven't learned anything else, it's just pressure. You you get into an area where you you know, you you hunt too much or you hunt it too hard and you just pressure the deer in general, the herd, the deer are pressured. And if the deer are pressured and they're not wanting to come out and they're they're giving those reactions like they're constantly, you know, looking around and and, and they're not they're not comfy in their comfort zone. I I never I'll never think that it, a, a big mature white tail buck is going to step out there with a the deer herd that's kind of uneasy or unsettled. Does that make sense? It does. Yeah, so I, w- I would have to say pressure. Um pressure can come in a, a variety of ways. Um whether it be from, you know, walking in the same trail every time. Um you know, getting in the tree every day at the same time, getting out at the same time. I mean, I see a lot of deer. Like I'm, when I scan the woods before I get out of the tree, like say mid morning, I'm not literally looking in the field to see if anything can see me. I'm looking in the woods. Like I'm still looking for white patches, some some subtle movement, a flicker of a tail. Like I I've had deer stand in the fringe of the woods that they blend in so well. And you know they're watching you. So that pressure could be from you getting in and out of your tree, now you're educating them. You know, it's just like turkey hunting. You keep calling to that tom every day at the same time in the same spot. He's going to gobble, but he's gobbling looking for another, you know, hen. He's not right. going to come into you. You're educating him. And I feel guys do that with deer, using the same call all the time, the same rattling sequence all the time. You know, just change stuff up. Don't be afraid to to, you know, we're evolved. Be smarter. You gotta be smarter than the deer. So so that being said, you gotta start thinking outside the box and you know, maybe not listen so much to Mike Beatty and rattle up in a tree. Maybe <laughs> maybe get in the ground, rattle on the ground, you know, hunt out of a ground blind, just change stuff up.
1: Yeah. That's a great point. Um speaking of these different lessons learned, um, I always find that one of the best ways for me to learn is hearing about, you know, specific applications. Um, so you mentioned you killed a 13-pointer this past season. Can you tell us what you did on that hunt or what, whether it be on that hunt or in the days leading up to it, what about that situation led to you killing that buck? How did that all come together?
3: Well,
0: um, I, first off, I, this particular spot, I actually had a, a cell camera in and I didn't have to go in there as much, and it wasn't as pressured. So I think that, that led to some of the success on this hunt. Um, second, I went in with the intent of setting all day. Um, so I didn't want – I got in – I always seem to get in an hour, hour and a half, sometimes two hours, maybe even a little more sometimes, before daylight. And it just depends on where I'm going. Like, I, if I know it's a good spot – I'll get in and I'll pull everything up, get everything set up. And I, you know, you almost, I almost can feel like each spot, because you spend so much time in it throughout the year, like I can almost feel like I know where I'm putting the bow hanger, where I'm hanging my pack in this particular set, and which side I'm pulling my bow up on, and, and so on. So I try to get in as early as possible and try and get set and be quiet like set in the dark and i can't see anything not even my hand in front of my face i don't use any lights um no lights going in no lights coming out um gloves and mask on going in and out you know i'm a caucasian guy that's you know a bald guy i'm pretty white (laughs) you know and i I,
3: that sun's out i
0: don't want it glaring off my beam you know what i mean (laughs) so i'm wearing stuff to cover because deer can see at night too so i'm i'm trying to slip in undetected and slip out undetected. And, you know, if that means I have to set all day in in the best spot I have, I will. And uh, that's what happened with this 13 point. I ended up, I was going to set all day. It was kind of right before rut was kicking in, and these bucks were cruising, and they were just trying to go from bedding to bedding, trying to find a hot doe. Um, I actually had three or four does come out, run out of this thicket, And I thought, man, here he comes. He's going to be behind them. And they were just by themselves. And they just come running through and milled off. And I'm like, what the heck? Where's he? What spooked him? So, of course, we have a big-time coyote issue here, I believe, in Ohio, just like most states anymore. They have no predators here. So I'm thinking maybe some coyotes, you know, bumped them out of the thickness. So I'm looking and nothing. So I've killed two or three coyotes out of the set in, in the past few years with bow, and I, I figured one was going to come sneaking through. So I get up, I grab my bow, and I'm just getting ready, waiting on another Nothing shows up. So I sat there for, I don't know, probably another 15 minutes. But up in front of me, there's, there's a little bit of a finger of a food plot in the edge of the thicket, and there's I put one of the landmines in. And uh, this guy, I don't know if you guys ever seen them, but they're just a, a small bottle of urine and they got a wick on them. And I just it out a hole, slide it down in, pack around it, and pull the wick out in the scent there. Well, it, I can only use that in specific areas that I have active scrapes. Like, I won't go make my own scrape. I try not to do any of that stuff. Like, if it's not made by a deer, I try not to really mess with it or try and make them go there. Like, I want them to go to their natural areas and make their scrapes and scrape lines. So on this particular area, there was, like, four or five scrapes right in a row. So I picked one of the smaller scrapes and set this thing up, where well, I put a can that wireless camera over it, and I had, you know, four or five nice bucks coming in there, but one was a 13-point, a pretty good one. But anyhow, I am- ended up by... I heard something coming from behind me, and I turned around and looked, and before I could get, you know... You know, uh, arranged in the tree he just like kind of jogged, jolted right out from underneath them He shot out from underneath them and stopped and looked around went over, got a drink went over, worked that, that scrape, or the one next to it and then walked into the thicket and it was an 8 point probably 135, 140 and I was like, man, God, just enough to get your blood pumping, you know, and I was just like on oh, pins and needles and then he left and I thought Hang on, it my hunt's going to be over for you know till this evening. So I sat back down. Of course, you got to set. You don't set all day. You got to you got to get a comfortable stand. So I had one that had text balloon that the cloth seat on, which was really nice. So I was sitting in this stand, and um, probably another five or ten minutes went by, and I heard something behind me. It sounded like squirrels playing in the leaves. Before I could even turn around and look, he took off running the thickest part of the fence row and shot right out underneath of me close to where the eight point came out and it was at 13 point and he just stopped right in front of me and like five yards and just was looking around into the thicket like standing the thicket up into the thicket and I I mean I already had my bow in my hand at that point and I just was like man dude it's your unlucky day I mean he was right there and he just you know he's probably mid-160s so I just like boom he's done (laughs)
2: <laughs> about 40, five, that uh, easy, huh? <laughs> what
0: well, was that day? You know, yeah, had, for
2: sure, for sure.
0: Bad, bad uh, encounters were it, it wasn't so so easy, you know, and I've learned from it. But uh, this year, it went off without a hitch, pretty easy.
1: It's nice when it all comes together. That's for sure. No doubt. Yeah. So that is a fact. So I feel like there's a ton more we could talk about whitetails, um, but. Before we wrap things up, which we need to hear pretty quickly, I wanted to make sure we at least heard a little bit about the story you told me this past couple weeks ago. You were telling me about your Alaskan hunt you went on this past year, and it sounded like that was just amazing. Um, could you tell us a little bit about that hunt and uh, and maybe why an Alaskan hunt is something we should all be thinking about someday?
0: Oh, dude, it's like uh, it's like where we were at, it was like God has never let anyone walk up through there before it's like literally untouched turf and it's just it's just amazing every uh, the only way i can explain it every every place in, in alaska it seems like every direction you look it's like a different postcard and like you just can't get enough of it like even when you leave you crave to go back just to see the mountains and just the scenery and just the atmosphere but it's so wild and untamed it's it's literally ridiculous um we, me and my son, my son's stationed up in, in Alaska, and uh, my daughter's in the military as well, but we, uh, we drew a tag for a doll sheep tag in the Toke management area, which is like a 1% or 2% draw. So, I mean, it's like hitting a lottery, right? So I'm thinking, man, we're going to have sheep all over us. So anyhow, we, we contacted an airline company, a taxi, and they dropped us off in this river bottom. Well, it took us, and I'm not kidding you, this is unbelievable. But it took us 18 hours, eight hours the first day because we didn't get in because we were socked in because of rain. So we got in late. Eight hours the first day, we set up camp in this little like sandbar that actually rocks against this cliff edge. Then from there, another 10 hours the next day just to get to our base camp where we set up to to start seeing sheep. And uh, that was two two guys, 80-pound packs, self-guided. I trained for... Ten months, twenty-one days, and three hours for that hunt. I mean, just hauling, hauling the mail every day, just as much weight as I could get on me, and hiking as much as I could. So we get up in there, and to make a long story short, it we seen sheep. They were on the other side of the canyon, um, and when I say canyon, it was like it it was literally like a mile, mile and a half across. It was just ridiculous big. So we seen sheep over there. We seen two shooters. We made plans that afternoon to go see what they were going to do that evening. This was like two or three days into the hunt. Um, see what they were going to do that evening, and then make a move on them the next morning and try and get up and cross, you know, pack up camp, get down across the canyon stream, and back up the other side. Um, so anyhow, that evening, um, two big grizzlies showed up, one on each end of the canyon. And, man, they just they blew everything out of the canyon. We had moose, like a 60-inch moose in, in velvet, um, uh, probably a 400-inch-plus uh, caribou on the other side of the canyon. They were, every, all, all the game was on the other side of the canyon except for a black bear that actually came in close to camp, which we had a black bear tag, but we were early in the hunt, and we wanted to kill our shoot. So, but yeah, the, the – the bear were everywhere, but yeah, we had a we had a bang up time, I and mean, it was a lot of fun. We learned a lot. Um, didn't get much sleep at night because of the bear, but it was <laughs>
1: fun. Yeah, it's, it sounds incredible, and uh, it, it makes me really excited to get out there. Like I was telling you, I, I'm tentatively planning on my first trip out there this year, so so I'm pretty pumped about that.
0: But you'll have a blast. Um, if you if if your listeners do nothing else, if they can just get to Alaska. You don't have to go on a big game hunt. Go on a hike. Go go fishing. The fishing is phenomenal up there. and Just in the, the little streams and rivers, you catch silver salmon and pink salmon, and they're just so delicious.
1: Hmm. Any single piece of advice you can give someone who's planning or going to be going on their very first Alaskan trip, is there anything you learned this past season that you wish you had known beforehand that you can pass along to listeners now?
0: I would say... As far as like um, stuff that really saved us, and we, we really didn't think about it at the time, well, one would be trained. You obviously need to train for for the environment you're going to be in. If you're going to be on a tundra, train for like spongy, soupy, nasty hiking forever to try and get close to caribou or bear. If you're going to be in the mountains. You need to train on a on a if nothing else a stairmaster with as much weight in a pack as you can get. Um, as far as like gear, I think I was sharing this with you. Um, we had um, Gore pants and jacket on when it was raining one day, and trying to, to to like hop across these little streams that's coming off these mountains. The the streams are so violent; the water is moving so fast from like glacier runoffs and stuff. And there's there's like no fish in them. I mean, they're just it's like silt and stuff in them. They're like almost a gray sometimes or clear. And, then it's just so violent. So we're trying to get across these things, and we're trying to do it without getting our boots wet. Because once you get your boots wet, you're kind of done. You've got to get them dried out because so you're going to get blisters, right? So we wore two pair of socks, boots, and then what we found halfway through the trip was if we took the gaiters, it um, doesn't, doesn't necessarily have to be sithras, but sitka makes gaiters that go over top of your boots and saves sticks from going up in your strings your boot laces and stuff. Well, if you put those over top of your boots and then over top of your your gore pants, your reindeer pants that are waterproof, they're literally like waders. Like, if, as long as you didn't stand in the water for forever, if you, like, got across quickly, you could walk probably 15 to 20 yards wide. You could get across streams that wide that were knee-deep or deeper, as long as they didn't go over your waist, you know. And you could get across those, and, and your boots still weren't wet on the inside. So that would be my number one piece of gear if I was heading to Alaska. Would definitely be a really good rain suit, like a Gore-Tex rain suit, and then those gaiters, and then obviously a good pair of boots. I, I think I had like Loa Hunter GTXs. They had a real heavy rand, a rubber rand around the bottom to keep the shell from cutting your leather. But I, uh, yeah, that, and then you know something I
1: guess <laughs> yeah yeah that helps well, well I, I'd, yeah. I'd say that you have effectively gotten us pumped not only for whitetails now but also to try to go to Alaska someday so <laughs> that's a fact
2: yeah now yeah.
1: well this has been a lot of fun uh, Dan do you have any final question or final thoughts before we wrap this up
2: I think I'm good man hey uh, good luck this upcoming season
1: yeah hey you too um,
0: do you ever get to go back out to, to shipwreck rest- shipwrecks uh resting place
2: uh i've i've been i've seen uh the full body mount i've seen i every time i go back and back home to that area i uh i go and visit i go and stop by the shop and say hi to sam
0: yeah that dude's salt of the earth man he's a good yep. good man but hey it's been a pleasure guys uh be safe and best of luck to to you guys and your your listeners um if anybody shoots like a 307 please email me I love to be able to see it and touch it.
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> maybe maybe someday we can uh, do the same with yours. That seems like a pretty incredible deer. It was an awesome story. So thank you Mike for for sharing all this, not only that story but then also what you've been doing in the years past. It's uh, been awesome. So thank you.
3: Yes
0: sir. Thank you guys. I appreciate you.
1: And that is it for us today. Before we go though big thanks to our partners at Sitka Gear yeti coolers matthews archery maven optics whitetail institute of north america carbon express and huntera maps and finally thank you all for listening i hope you enjoyed our chat with mike today and i hope you'll stay wired to hunt